So as you can already see, the format's going to be different this week, and um, I want to say this as we get started. We're going to be looking at the same characters that are going to be uh, uh, studied by our young people in Vacation Bible School. Maybe it'll be a good time for you to talk about and think about some of the things that were said. Um, As such, we're not going to have a a formal invitation at the end of this lesson. I will close this in a word of prayer. Uh, The time that they're going to be, the the kids moving from station to station is like an hour and 15 minutes. Uh, I'm not going to keep you the whole time, probably just an hour and eight or nine minutes and then... I, I'm, uh, I'm from the school that says, you know, stand up, speak up, and shut up. So when I'm, I'm done, we're done, and we'll have a, a prayer. But, but keep in mind, please, and this is something that maybe we don't emphasize enough on Sunday morning, Sunday night, when we are delivering a, a lesson in a more conventional worship setting, is God's invitation is always open. And there's certainly more than one way that that uh, can be handled. There's no pattern given to us for exactly how that's to be done. We typically do so as an expedient where you can come down front uh, and make that known in a public fashion, Uh, but certainly that can be communicated any number of ways. You can speak to one of the elders or to me. You could uh, email it, text it, and we we could share that. So please realize that even though we're not going to be in this Bible class setting uh, offering an invitation, that that's always your opportunity. Uh, Any time, day or night. And you're ready, I'll tell you this, if you're ready to be baptized into Christ, let us know. We'll stop the lesson and we'll take care of that. There's nothing more important than that. We'll be talking about Noah tonight. um, And as we do, I thought it might be good for us to get started by saying, and hear hear me well as I ask this, what from the New Testament do you know about Noah? He's a preacher of righteousness. All right, extra bonus points if you can tell me where kind of that's from. That's not fair. You, all right. I guess I gave it to you, so whatever you can find. He's a preacher of righteousness. We'll come back to that. What else? See, it's been two days since I made or three days since I made that sheet, so I can't remember. Anything else you can remember? What else does the New Testament use Noah to teach? Faith. All right. So where does it teach that? Hebrews. Hebrews what? What's the faith chapter? Hebrews 11. All right. We're going to start there in just a moment, but what else? What else does the New Testament teach using Noah? Preacher or righteousness, 2 Peter 2, 5. Uh, faith, Hebrews 11 and verse 7. Okay, Ted, would you say it again? Saved by water. Saved by water. So what is that? Baptism. Where is that taught? 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. Actually, verse 20. Uh, 21 is the application of it. What else? You thought we'd exhausted all of it. There's one other thing, and, and no less a teacher than Jesus uses Noah to teach this important subject. He does so in Luke chapter 17 and at the latter half of Matthew chapter 24. So that might give you a hint. As it was in the days of Noah, they were marrying and giving in marriage. And they did not know until the flood took them away so shall what be? The coming of the Son of Man, the judgment. So it's interesting to me, and when I teach the scheme of redemption, I think the Humphreys were there at Mount Pleasant when I taught that about a month or six weeks ago, uh, and there may have been an occasion where you've heard me to deliver uh, some uh, form of this material. 
But as we go through the scheme of redemption, one of the points I like to make is that so often I don't know what's going to happen in these classes tonight. I don't know what all they're going to be telling them about. They're going to certainly walk through some of the particulars, and we are too, about the dimension of uh, the ark and about what was happening in the, in the, at that time. But it's interesting to me that we have precedent for preaching from the Old Testament. New Testament writers and speakers did it all the time. And even though the facts and the information that is going to be learned tonight about the, the Noah and the ark and the factual record that that is and uh, the importance that it was to the events going on in his generation, it is a very New Testament story. There is a lot that said, and what we want to focus in on this week is hope. Now, hope, this idea of the anchor, hope is an anchor, that's also from Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19. As you come to the book of Hebrews, what's really the general idea of that epistle? What is the Hebrews writer trying to get a point? What's his, his big idea? Jesus is better. He's superior. And he's superior in all these different ways. He's superior uh, in uh, his character, his nature. That's how the book begins. He's superior in his message. God spoke in a lot of different ways. He spoke uh, in the Old Testament. He brought the first covenant by the angels. But we have a better messenger. We have a better message. And, and he go all the way through that epistle. When we get to Hebrews chapter 6, it's in the middle of talking about the fact that we have a better high priest. And as a better high priest, he's better in so many different ways. And one of the benefits of the high priest that we have that's perfect, he's without flaw, he's without any kind of weakness at all, is that we have a, um, on his character a better promise. And he's writing to these folks who are, are really struggling with going back to where they came from. We can't relate to being a Jew and going back to Judaism. And there are a great many of you perhaps that were raised in the church. But for uh, us, it may be the pressure to go back to the religious group that we came to Christ from. Or it could be to go back into the world. And, and what's going to keep us from yielding to the pressure to go back where we came from? Well, the Hebrews writer is making a point. He's talked about Melchizedek, this high priest that didn't have any uh, predecessor, didn't have any successor. And... Um, God is saying that we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. It's sure and steadfast. And it enters within the veil. Still, still using that priestly language that we have something that we can hold on to. All right, so that's the general principle that we're going to be looking at is that we have a hope in Jesus that keeps us anchored down when we look at a world that seems to be drifting in so many ways. And the different folks that we're going to look at are going to be appearing in time where it seemed like culture was adrift. And that doesn't surprise us because every generation seems to be adrift. Now when we get to Noah, in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7, the Bible there essentially says that by faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the saving of his family, by which he condemned the world, and he became an heir of the righteousness which is by faith. So as the Hebrews writer is trying to encourage these Christians, don't let go, anchor down to Jesus. One of the things that's going to help you to do that, have that hope, is to have a faith like Noah had. 
Now, the thing that is remarkable to me is that a story that is as old as the Noah story, that's 4,500 years old, seems to me to be as relevant as the morning news. Look in your Bibles real quick to Genesis chapter 6, if you will. Genesis chapter 6. Just, if you will, have your Bible open there and consult it. And as you look at it, um, Charlie, cheat as much as you want. Look down in the Bible. I guess it's not cheating if it's the Bible. What does the Bible say about Noah's day? Okay. All right. And is there any significance to the rest of the events that are going on with that statement? They were extraordinary times in their way, certainly. All right. So that's kind of a neutral fact. Nothing wrong with there being giants in the land. What else is said? All right, so we're going to come to that in just a moment. In verse 5, there is a description of what life was like in Noah's day. Wickedness. In fact, again, how wicked, you know, what was that, the, the old storyline, the old joke? How bad was it? How bad was it? And it's no joke. It was real bad. All right, it was bad enough that God wanted to destroy them. I just, it, and I never can... I mean, it's so impressive to me that God pulls out all these superlative words. He could have just said it was real bad, and that would have been bad enough. But he said God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of men's heart was what? Well, no, 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 look at it. What does it say? Only evil continually. You know, it's, it's a temptation that we have in, in our day, whatever that day is, to say it's never been as bad as it is right now. And, and is it a fair statement that it's never been any worse in our lifetimes than it, than it is right now? I, I don't know that you could think of in our lifetime, and at least in our country, a time when things were morally as bad as they are now. And the question again is, is it that bad? Have we gotten to Noah's place yet? Before you, before you answer that, realize that there's more than eight people in this room. It's not that bad. It's bad. But I, I just try to imagine what life was like for Noah and his family when, when he's walking about and he's doing his work, he's trying to prepare the ark, and he is surrounded by people who are so consumed with wickedness in the way that they were in Noah's day. It was bad enough that I don't know, maybe somebody can help me. Is there another place in the Bible where it says that God repents? Now, that doesn't mean that he is saying he's done something wrong. He's saying God's sorry that he has made man because of how sorry man had become. And so God is facing a decision that you know if you know God and understand God, and we've already seen so much about God's character, that this had to pain him. But he created humanity with the ability to choose. And giving man that freedom, man had abused that freedom to the utmost. To a point that it's hard for us, even in the United States in 20 to 21, to imagine the depths to which people had gone. So, all right, so as we're describing Noah's day, it's, it's bad. It's very bad. It's bad as Genesis 6, 5 says it. What else do we know about that time? What else does Moses share with us in Genesis 6? Okay, where do you see that? All right, so, you know, it, it, does, it does us some good to stop there for just a moment and camp out and say 
that God's response... Now, God's a perfect God, and so he's going to respond in, in his perfection. And part of that perfection is going to be the, the, the Noah story, that he's going to destroy the earth with water. Destruction, judgment. But don't miss what precedes that. And certainly had to have characterized the heart of God as this is happening. Can you imagine, from his perspective, he is the father of all? As he is watching... The waters rise and the people who are not on the ark, how it had to have grieved God's heart to have to do that. But man had given in wholesale to sin, had totally rejected God. Okay, what else? Okay. So God in his omniscience, seeing, and you know, there have been some of the folks at Apologetics Press talking about just given the, the length of time that people lived, that what we call the antediluvian, and that sounds like a big ten-cent word, all it means anti before, diluvian, the deluge, the flood, that antediluvian period, the before the flood period, that you had enough time and enough history and longevity and people being fruitful and uh, replenishing the earth, and I'm not sure you can go to the uh, Apology Express website to see how they derived this number. They said there could have been as many as 11 billion people. It doesn't give us any heartburn. There's almost 8 billion now. And God knows the hairs on our head. Our days are numbered. He knows everything about every one of us. You know, I, I, was, I was thinking about this, if I can be personal just a moment, in that regard. Um, my brother has been in ICU for, he's in his ninth week now. And, um, you know, you, you, there have been hundreds, maybe thousands of prayers prayed to God on his behalf. Maybe every day. And yet he lays in a bed um, with a trach, can't talk, can't really communicate. He uh, just had a, a cath put in that's going to be 24-7 uh, to keep him on dialysis. And, and my thought in that is, take away everybody else, you that are praying for him. Here's my dad and mom who are his, his caregivers. My dad wants him to recover. And is praying fervently every day. My mom certainly wants that too. God's working through that situation. I don't know how it's going to turn out. I mean, I, I'm, I'm thankful that if he, if he doesn't survive this, he's going to spend an eternity with God. So there's not a bad outcome. And I'm not even sure that we can say that, that I mean, I'm, I'm sure we can say that God is not unmindful of what's going on. How's he going to? How's this going to work out? God is working through the specifics of that situation. He is working through doctors and nurses, through three individual lives, and then all the family, and then all the friends, and the folks where Brent preaches. But meanwhile, while he's doing that, God is doing the same thing and 7.8-something billion people's lives on this earth. To me, it's unfathomable that God is providentially at work in every single situation, in every individual lives. The people that you pray for every day that are attached to people that you're not praying for, that somebody else is praying for, the people that perhaps nobody is praying for, but God is perhaps, uh, you know, He's doing, He's weaving, intersecting in all their lives. 78 Eight billion people, it would take God to do something like that. And I said all that to say in, in regards to what Kevin said. You have all of this going on, this abject rejection of God 
And God looks down through all that cloud of sin and he sees Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. And he is at work for a hundred years in the outplaying of that situation where those folks are going to get on the ark. It's incredible. What else do we see in Genesis chapter 6? Every intent. All right, so my understanding of that would be there's the motivation piece. So you think about the deeds that are going on. You think about the thoughts that are taking place. But there's even the motives whereby people were moved. And can you imagine that you're, you're dealing with multiple fronts of wickedness. You're dealing with the, the deeds that are taking place. You're, you're dealing with, Micah talks about, if you look at Micah chapter 4 and chapter 5, he says that they lay on their beds at night and they devise evil and they wake up in the morning and they do it because it's in the power of their hands. But it started in their hearts and their minds. And so you, you think about folks who are thinking these wicked and, and, and terrible thoughts. But then you get down to their, their, even their motives. What's moving them? What's driving them in life? Now Noah's blameless and upright. We're going to see that in Genesis chapter 6. But you have everybody else and what they're driven by is purely wicked or or sinful in in its intentions. And and to me that's great. That's That's another layer to the difficulty of trying to live in Noah's world and his generation. Anything else you see? Yeah. It forms the man. It forms the person. Yeah, that's that's a great point, and they were totally consumed in that way. That's a Genesis six five statement. They they were spiritually failing in all those regards, and to such an extent that God said, "I've had enough. I'm done." Um, you might look a little later down in there, verse twelve, verse thirteen, that there was violence uh, in the earth. So, so I, I didn't want to camp out this long on this point, except to say this. Can't you almost hear the news desk reading out stories and then turning it over to the, the weather person to do the weather? I mean, it sounds like our day. Not as bad in our day as it was then. But you have language being used. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says there's going to come difficult times. Now, um, the Apostle Paul, is, is, he, is he looking at a specific time? Uh, there's a case that could be made for that. But certainly we could say that the characteristics of things that you read about in 2 Timothy chapter 3 are, are typical or, or are descriptive of our day. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 13 it says, Evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. I, don't, I won't t- take the time to look at it, but Psalm chapter 40 verse 1 through 4, David talks about those that are making war who are full of violence. All right, so that's, that's the world that Noah lived in. Now, I've set the stage for that to say, say what? The Hebrews writer pulls Noah's life out of that generation. And what does he say about him? Hebrews 11 and verse 7. What do we learn about Noah in a time just like we described? First of all, we know, yes, certainly by faith. All right, so you talk about the, what is it, uh, Chuck, the uh, emotion, the intellect, and the will. All right, so Noah's exercising that as well. And his exercise led him by faith to do what? So by faith he built a boat. So what does that tell us about his faith? Well, he, had never seen, he hadn't seen rain, as we saw, as this Bible tells us. 
Okay, his faith moved him to do something. It wasn't just a belief. It wasn't just a conviction or a feeling. It, it had legs. Okay? By faith, Noah prepared an ark. Anything else of significance to you there? He cared about his family. In, a, in an environment, so you think about this as a parent for a moment. Living in a world like that, what would your tendency be? If you knew that people were combining their intellect, their emotion, and their will to live in the ways violence was growing all the time. So you, you think about it. It's one of the big stories going on in our world right now, in our nation, right? The, the crime rate. It's going, I mean, by, just from a dispassionate, apolitical point of view, the numbers indicate that crime is going up. In most major cities, it's up by a significant percentage but over this time last year, and it's up about that same percentage from 2019. In just two years, think about how much violence and anarchy that has occurred. And that being the case, think is apparent. Yes, sir. Now, I'm going to hang on to that thought because I'm going to come back to it on another point here, but that's a fantastic observation. Now, you're, you're Noah, and there's Ham, Shem, and Japheth before they're big enough to help you with the ark building project. As a parent, what's your response when you walk out your door and you have no idea what's going to happen? What would your tendency be? Stay home. Circle the wagons. Close up shop. Build a bunker. Do something, but don't take on this world. What does Noah do? He preaches for a hundred years. What kind of an example was that for Ham, Shem, and Japheth? To see their dad out doing that in a world where nobody else is doing that at all. And so when you look at the circumstances of Noah's life, he is doing that. He is able to raise his children right in a world that has gone very wrong. Now what I want to do in just a few minutes is I'd like to, for you to, to notice with me how Noah's faith could help him to be anchored with the hope that causes him to be somebody worthy of us studying. First of all, I want you to notice with me, this is where your, your sheet will come in handy. Noah's faith expressed itself in his walk. In his walk. Now, if you will, go back with me to Genesis chapter 6. Let me make a few observations with you. The first one is that Noah did according to all that God commanded him. That's a statement that's made by Moses in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 22. Now, if you'll walk back in the text to Genesis chapter 6, verse 13 through 21, what are the specific commands that God gives him in those verses? So maybe start about verse 13. Just kind of, just holler them out as you see them. What are the commands? Make yourself an ark. Use gopher wood. Cover it with pitch. All right, make rooms. All right, cover it inside. Keep going. Gave its dimensions, gave the length, gave the width, gave the height. What? One window. How many levels? How many decks? Right. What else? Put every living thing in it. Provide food. Did we say the tar or the pitch already? Okay. I'm missing one. Huh? How to set the door. Thirteen commands. Alright, here's a question for you. Did Noah earn his salvation? 
He was obedient. All right, so what if Noah had done 10 out of the 13? 11 out of the 13? 12 out of the 13? Good to go? Yeah, right. It would have been a rebellious response. His faith was in response. And by the way, why is God giving him these commands? Who's it for? It's for him, for his family, for their survival, for the survival of humanity. God's superseding, is supervising this. He is overseeing this. And he's saying, I want you to do all these things. Noah, there's no, there's no fudging with those. There's no changing the wood. There's no changing the dimensions. It's the perfect seafaring uh, ratio. There's there, the, the tar, that's for your good. The, I don't know some of the commands. Why does the window need to be where it is? Why three decks, not two, not four? It doesn't matter. God had it all planned out. And he said, Noah, work the plan. And what did Noah do? You look at Noah. You see, Noah's faith expressed itself in his walk. He did what God commanded him to do. And every one of those commands had some kind of purpose. It was to either keep he and his family alive or it was to take care of the animals and all of the living things on the other side of the flood. If we want to walk with God today, we've got to do so according to all that he commands us. This is true as it relates to becoming a Christian. It's true of our worship to God and our priorities. God wants us to do according to all that he has commanded uh, us to do. Now... I also want to observe this about his walk, that Noah and his family entered God's place of safety. What's God's place of safety in this account? It's the ark. God told Noah what was coming, and he warned him about where the place of safety was. And as much as God was impressed with Noah's conduct and Noah's obedience, if Noah had completed this project and he and his family didn't get in the ark, what's the end result? We're not having this Bible class tonight because there ain't none of us. We're done. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Man, that, that is a fantastic point. God has Noah making, constructing something that's going to save. You've got man trying to make and construct something that's destroying, that's ruining life on this earth. And you have these dueling, and, and, it's, and, and that's the story of every generation. You're going to do your own construction project, you're going to do the Lord's construction project. And you choose man's, you're going to get the same thing that they got then. Right? And, and it's interesting because it's human nature and, and, and following our flesh instead of following God's guidance that leads man to do the same thing over and over and over again. God set aside one place of safety to save man. God would not have saved Noah and his family in their homes, in a tree, or in another boat. Their choice was the ark or a watery grave. Now, here's a question. What about their fellow citizens? Mike, this was the comment you made a while ago. We have some inkling because of the genealogical record of Genesis 4 and 5 about Noah's father and grandfather. But what about Noah's mother and grandmother? What about Mrs. Noah's family? What about the daughters-in-law's family? I mean, statistically speaking, don't you think that some of them were alive? What does that say about God that these family members were not saved? It's a painful question. I realize that. Maybe it hits too close to home. Why weren't they... Is that like... We're almost done. 
If so, we may have to do Noah part two tomorrow night. I don't know how that's going to work. Huh? That's the, that's the switch? Okay. All right. Steve's got me on, on, on board here. All right. Why weren't they saved? Don't you think that God should have made an exception for Noah's family since he was so faithful and he had done what God told him to do? What about the people who lived near the ark? I mean, they were, they were right. They were close. Did Noah have friends? I mean, you would, you would assume. I mean, maybe, maybe he didn't make a lot of friends with the kind of message he was preaching, but didn't he have folks that were... Weren't there some relatively... I mean, well, just six 6-5 would say no, but... Now, that had to be heartbreaking. But let's not be confused... God didn't condemn them. God said, here's your way to safety. And don't you have to believe that God in His providence made that ark big enough for anybody that wanted to get on there? Why did they not escape the flood? They made a choice. It's a very difficult thing. I've been to a lot of funerals. And I've heard sometimes people who I believe know better, who are in the position of preaching the ceremony, the sermon. And that person made, there may be a lot of good things we can say about them. And it's a struggle when you're the preacher not to be unkind. I don't think it's my job at any funeral to preach anybody into hell. What good would it serve? That person is gone. That to me is not exercising good judgment, good sense. And if somebody has not been obedient, they've not gotten into God's place of safety, it's also not my job, no matter how much pressure I feel, to say we know that they're in peace, they're in Abraham's bosom, we know that they're in heaven right now, when they did nothing in their life to get into God's place of safety. You know what I'm going to do in that situation is I'm going to preach comfort to the family. I'm going to try to be kind and loving and to try to encourage the living about what God wants all of us to do. Let me tell you this story just real quick. I was there was a there was a young man who we'd baptized some years back. He came from a, a family that was just way out in in the world. He had gotten involved in immorality and he had been disfellowshipped by the congregation where I preached. Um, was still away from the Lord, but the the religious influence was so sparse that they didn't have a preacher. And so the best they could do to preach his grandfather's funeral was at the church where he was disfellowshipped. I still uh, thought highly of this young man. Um, good, was a good boy uh, in a lot of ways. Well, I was asked to preach the funeral, and everything. I had my comfort sermon, you know, uh, about uh, God. We couldn't have a Jesus, a Lord that cared more than than our Lord, and that kind of thing, and um, find strength in the Scripture and that sort of thing. Was a was a good bit, you know, had was a, a good worker, was a good husband, those kinds of things. Well, Shane's uncle um, was a big, burly guy. And I'm talking about two minutes before I'm supposed to preach a funeral. He came in and said, look, it took some doing 
But my sister, when my dad was in the hospital this last time, she, she, she stayed on him and stayed on him and stayed on him. And finally he said the sinner's prayer. I want you to share that at the funeral. I mean, look at me. I mean, this guy is, you know. I thought, what am I going to do? I got up and I, I preached the sermon that I had prepared. Wasn't unkind. Didn't preach him into heaven or hell. I just preached. After the service, you know, the preacher will go and he'll stand at the at the hearse and the and wait for the casket. Last guy out was the uncle, and he's well, he's a big barrel chested guy too. You know, he came up there and he let me know. I want you to say what my sister said at the graveside. I think it was five minutes from there to the to the graveside, but it, it felt like an eternity. And I thought, I ain't never been punched for preaching, but I guess this is going to be the day. I got up there and I said, you know, we could not ask for a more loving Savior, a more kind Savior than Jesus. And so I'd like to hear from His words. And I said whatever I had to say. can't remember what it was. And then I, I braced my jaw and He came up afterwards. And he just shook my hand and he said, thank you, preacher. If there was ever a time where I felt tempted to tell somebody what they wanted to hear, that was then. But we don't do anybody a service when we give somebody false hope. I was involved in a community Bible study in which there was a, a, a man who was an elder to a neighboring congregation who was also involved in the study. It involved some folks from... Um, religious heir who were all involved in the study and the, and the patriarch of that study was very very close to obeying the gospel but in the end he had cancer and he did not obey the gospel before he died that elder was asked to preach the funeral all the folks who were in that community bible study who were in the same religious condition as him were at the funeral and that elder in that funeral said we're so thankful that gave his name is in heaven now closed the door on a study with 12 people. I wouldn't want to be in his place. Every single one of us, all of us, have family members who we love, who are good people. But when we stand before Christ on the judgment day, it's not going to be on the basis of our goodness alone. In fact, it won't be on the basis of our goodness. It's going to be on the basis of whether we have got, gone to God's place of safety. And if we haven't, Noah, part of that story is to illustrate to us a faith that saves is a faith that obeys and puts its trust in God's salvation. You know, that's not... I, I, obviously, I'm not running for political office and that's not anything that's going to make me seem you know, like I'm trying to win a popularity contest. But... Noah teaches that if it doesn't teach anything else. We've got to be in God's place of safety. How did they get into God's place of safety? They went in the door. How do we get in God's place of safety? Remember, Peter uses that as an illustration. Right, so, so Hebrews 11.7 is talking about the faith part. Remember the verse right before that? We know the verse right before that. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of all them that diligently seek him. And Noah was a seeker. And in seeking him, he went through the door. So his faith caused him to do what Peter's going to write about in 1 Peter chapter 3 in verse 20. You know, um, 
in the days of Noah where the long-suffering of God waited, in which eight were saved by water, in the same way water, the baptism also now saves us. All right, so God has a, a, a door to safety today. It's not baptism alone, but it involves baptism. That's the, the point or the place in which one is demonstrating their faith. Is, is it just me or y'all hearing a ring every time I talk? That's got to be irritating to y'all. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know what to do to change it. Um, but anyway, I'll maybe speak a little softer. I don't know. Um, but that baptism put them in the place of safety. What's the place of safety? 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. For by one baptism you were all baptized into what? Anybody know? Well, there are scriptures that tell us that baptism puts us into Christ into one body. All right? What body is that? Okay. What is the body of Christ? The New Testament church. It's God's place of safety. All I'd say about that before we leave it is, if there's a place of safety, if you're not in the place of safety, where are you? You're not safe. Okay. All right. Spent so much time on that. I, some, it's like 25 afters when this whole thing's done, isn't it? Here I thought I had about 15 minutes worth of material. I, I, I just overshot that a little bit. Let me just give you this. Number two, Noah's faith expressed itself in his work. Let me say this about his preaching. Was, was Noah a successful preacher or not? Second Peter 2.5. Preacher of righteousness. Was he successful? How do you measure success? You preach what you're supposed to. Wouldn't you say, if you were going to say successful preacher, you'd say, wouldn't you say Jonah? We're going to look at him later this week. How, how, how successful was Jonah? Noah preached to the whole earth for a hundred years. How many did he convert? Jonah goes into an entire city and he preaches one time, far as I know, a four or five word sermon, right? Man, wouldn't you like that? A four or five word sermon. Repent. Uh, uh, no, so what is the, the sermon? Anyway, you can go look it up. The book of Jonah. It's a very short book. I'll know by the time Tuesday comes along. Uh, 40 days and then it will be overthrown, something like that. Anyway, whole city repents. Man, any preacher would like that kind of result. How about Peter? Peter on the day of Pentecost preaches. They that gladly received his word were baptized and they were added how many? 3,000 souls. 400 times more successful than Noah in one day. And Noah did his work in one century. How do you measure success? He did what God told him. He preached what God told him to preach. That's right. That's it. Philip preached to multitudes and they believed. In Acts chapter 8, verse 5 through 12, um, Noah was a successful preacher because of three things. And I don't have time to go into them. He lived what he preached. You know, this is a weight that I had as a preacher growing up. By the way, I taught preacher in his work at Berry Valley Bible Institute. And in, I think it was 2007 or 16, Gary was in my class. 2017, Kathy decided to finish and get her bachelor's degree. She was in my class. 2018, Dale was in my class. 2009, no, anyway, four years in a row, I had a, either a child or a wife in the preacher in his work class. Well, that was hard. I mean, it was really hard to get up and teach. I'm telling these guys how they ought to live their life as a preacher each and every day. And I certainly didn't do it perfectly. Noah didn't either. But Noah lived a genuine life in front of his kids, and that had to make a big difference in them following his faith. didn't always work that way, but it did in the case of Noah. All right? Um, 
Noah was a persistent worker, worked for a hundred years. He was a, a faithful worker. He, he did what God told him to do. Um, his, there, nobody was converted, but it wasn't because his message was vague. It was because his hearers weren't prepared for the lesson. All right, and then Noah's faith expressed itself in his worship. Let's go to the other side of the flood. He comes out of the flood. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 20 and 21, it says that Noah built an altar to the Lord, and he took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of men, for the intent of men's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. I want you to notice three things real quick, and then we'll, we'll end the lesson. First of all, worship to God comes first. Noah comes off the ark. What's the first thing he does? Man, he prioritizes it. He builds an altar. Number two, worship should be generous. What's the, what's the, what's the payment of worship? What's the offering of worship? Do you notice that in Genesis 8, 20 and 21? It's of every clean animal and of every clean bird. You, you see, Noah shows us the cost of worship. And then worship involves action. He shows us the work of worship. Let me say this. There's a place for us to teach about not violating God's will in our singing. I'm a firm believer that we don't, maybe don't teach that enough. Maybe we assume it's been taught. But let me ask you a question. Which is worse? Is it worse for us to add an instrument to what God has specifically commanded for us? Or to sit there disinterested or if we're able and we choose not to admonish and teach one another in song. Which one's worse? Is the instrument worse? If so, why is it worse? If I'm disengaged in worship, if I'm not... In, see, what is worship? Worship proskuneo means to kiss toward. You know what that means? It means there's, there's, it's a conscious thing. You don't accidentally worship God. You don't fall into worship and you didn't even know you were doing it. Your, your heart, your, your will is involved in that. Which means I need to be engaged. And I'm not beating you up. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting as a worshiper too. And usually I've got a sermon I've got to preach. You don't think that's a little bit of distraction? We need to be engaged. I may not be the one standing up and leading the prayer, but I need to have my heart engaged in it. I may not be the guy out there preaching the sermon, but I need to try to keep my head in, in the game. In, in the Lord's Supper, it's what am I doing in that activity time during the, the, the time that the elements are being passed? And, and so I need to make sure I'm fully in. You know, Noah shows us that because you can't, you can't do what he did without having your heart and your mind. And I know that belongs to a different covenant. But we can look at John 4.24 and other passages that show us that God wants us to be worshiping him in spirit as well as in truth. He wants, he wants all of us. And he's worthy of that because of the great sacrifice that he's made for us. All right. So I'm going to be. All right. That may have solved the problem right there. It may have been sitting up there. I promise I won't go this long tomorrow. Y'all just too good of a, of, a, of Bible class. I just couldn't stop. It's your fault, but I'll, I'll forgive you, and we'll we'll go shorter tomorrow. Let's have a word of prayer. And I think what you can do is you can just uh, tonight you can just wait for a few minutes, and they'll be back in here. But uh, tomorrow night we'll give you some time. Maybe if it's able for you to go around to each one of the the stations.